at least stay for a birthday drink with me and Bridget. Yeah? Bye, Bridget. Mark. Why are you here? In the 2001 movie Bridget Jones's Diary, Bridget must choose between the wealthy bad boy Daniel Cleaver and the good guy, somewhat socially awkward, Mark Darcy. All right, Cleaver, outside. <laughs> I'm sorry? Outside? Uh, should I bring my dueling pistols or my sword? I, I want to make sure... You graduated last in your class, not first in your class. I want to make Mr. sure... Mr. President, can you let him finish, sir? No, he doesn't know how to do that. He has... Oh, quick! It's a real fight! Listen, did you use the word smart? You graduated either the lowest or almost the lowest in your class. Don't ever use the word smart with me. Don't ever use that word. I have done this years ago. Done what? This. Vote now. Make sure you, in fact, let people know you're a senator. I'm not going to answer the question because, because the question is... The question is... So my question to you is, you have refused in the past to talk about it. Are you willing to tell the American people tonight whether or not you will support either ending the filibuster or packing the court? Whatever position I take in that, that'll become the issue. The issue is the American people should speak. Today on Stories and Strategies, a special episode right after the U.S. election. Sometimes we're cheering for the good guy and sometimes we're cheering for the bad guy. We look at the communication strategies and presentations of the election through a psychological lens. Will you shut up, man? My name is Doug Downs. Just some housekeeping off the top. The movie Bridget Jones's Diary, distributed by United International Pictures Worldwide, Miramax Films in the United States, and Mars Distribution in France. This is a special episode of Stories and Strategies. You'll see lots of analysis of the U.S. election from political pundits, but we're going to do something different and look at this using psychology and behavioral study. My guest is chartered occupational psychologist, Dr. Jeremy Holt, the founder of the Center for Team Excellence based in West Sussex, United Kingdom. Dr. Holt, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Very nice to be here. Thanks. Thanks Doc. Dr. Holt, you have a first class honors degree in social psychology from the University of Kent, your occupational psychology master's in science at Cranfield, and you founded the Center for Team Excellence in 1999 offering services in leadership and team psychology to help elite level teams and their leaders reach their potential. And that's exactly what brings us to you today. The United States is an elite level team with leaders. And yet what we've seen unfold in this election has, has been increasing bitterness, exceptionally close results here, and maybe some unorthodox leadership, at, at least for one candidate. Would you agree? Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, you know, obviously over here in the UK, I think everybody's watching the US election with with interest, uh, sometimes a bit of shock. Um, but uh, certainly it's, it's something that has a big impact on the whole of the world. And it is probably the most polarized election that, that we've uh, that we've seen, certainly since in my life, you know, in my lifetime. As you and I record, it is uh, let's let's just declare Eastern time zone. It is just after ten o'clock in the morning Eastern time 
on Wednesday morning. So the results are not fully known as you and I are recording. Most of our listeners will know the result by the time they hear this. At this point, it appears like the Democratic candidate, Joe Biden, is going to win the presidential election. But it is still extremely close. It is a country divided, which is not entirely new. Uh, there's some history there. It seems more bitter. It seems more angry. Is that what you see as well? Yeah, I think so. So what, you know, it's not just in the US that we've seen a, a rise of a more populist kind of approach to politics and uh, more populist leaders. Um, and, and you know, that's true here in the UK. That's that's true in, in other European countries as well, um, in Brazil. Um, in in Hungary and Turkey, so so we've seen, you know, I would say this sort of increasing polarization um, uh, amongst the uh, uh, well, amongst voters, really. To dig into the success of Donald Trump, who who I think most, even his own supporters, would say he's unorthodox. He's remarkably managed to portray himself as an outsider. Uh, which is amazing given he's the incumbent candidate. The general consensus has been that in 2016, Donald Trump managed to create an us and them yeah. perspective. His core personality seems to revolve around unfairness, and he managed to convince enough people that things were unfair to them and that he was one of them. There's an Australian study that digs into some of the language that he used, right? Yeah, so uh, there's a there was a study conducted by a guy called uh, Nick Steffens who uh, looked at uh, Australian elections uh, over the last hundred years and uh, looked at the language used by the different uh, party leaders. And what he found was that in the vast majority of those elections, the leader who talked about us or we, who who evoked this sense of togetherness, uh, this sense of group, were the, were the more successful ones. And uh, back in 2016, we did an analysis of uh, Trump's speeches, and we compared them to Hillary Clinton's speeches. And we found that, sure enough, Trump references us. He talks about we he, he, uh, a lot more frequently than most other politicians. So I would say, if, if you look at Trump from a, from a conventional leadership perspective, perspective you'd say how on earth can he win you know who would follow him so if you think of leadership as being about personality or certain um sort of behaviors that we can prescribe and and always and always get right um then you would expect trump to be hugely unsuccessful if you on the other hand think of him as someone who's a leader uh, of an identity of a group identity, and and you look at some of the characteristics of that approach to leadership, then I think you can start to understand why he's been successful. Um, and uh, I suppose the key thing to recognize here is that if you're in his group, if you are a Trump supporter, your perception of him will be very different to someone who's outside of his group. And, and of course, the more exaggerated that becomes, the harder it is for the people outside of that group to imagine being in it. And truly not unique just to the United States. That's the situation in the UK, in Australia. I know it is here in Canada. It seems like we form tribal lines and, and maybe that's an apt reference that we're simply tribes who become blinded um, and are not open to new ideas. Yeah, so if you, if you think about this historically, 
um, you know, you go back through the, the history of the human race, we have been uh, creatures that have prospered in, um, in small communities. You know, the thing which, dis which really distinguishes us is our ability to collaborate, to communicate, to organize really quite sophisticated activities um, within those communities. Now, in order to do that, what you need to be able to recognize is you need to be very finely tuned into whether you're being included or whether you're being excluded. Because if you're being excluded and you don't recognize it, then at some point you're going to be thrown out of that community. And if you're thrown out of that community, and you know, we just have to go back two or three, four hundred years. If you if you were thrown out of your community, if you were excluded from it, you died. So if if we imagine, I think there's been something like uh, uh, three hundred thousand generations of human beings, and and so all of the people who were not tuned in to recognizing these very subtle social cues about inclusion and exclusion were excluded and they went out the gene pool. Um, so, so as humans, we're very drawn to this feeling of being included. And it starts with the process of categorizing ourselves as belonging to one group or another group. And once we go through that process of categorization, which incidentally we're doing all the time in a very dynamic way, um, and it has an impact on us all of the time, often in, in subtle ways that we don't realize, uh, but once we categorize ourselves as, as belonging to a group, then it alters our perceptions. So now what happens is that we start to self-stereotype ourselves as being more like a typical in-group member. And I think that it's fair to say that we've probably seen in, in the United States over the last uh, four years that there's been uh, behavior which is, you know, I, I think probably would have been considered pretty unacceptable 10 years ago, but now seems to be. Uh, acceptable uh, and that's so so that's a process of people self-stereotyping themselves as a trump supporter as part of his base and starting to behave in a way which is consistent with that now the second thing that happens is that we also then uh, stereotype everyone who's not in the group as something different and i think what trump's uh, genius has been is to lead that stereotyping and it started off by talking about you know the political elite who were only interested in their uh, Wall Street deals and weren't interested in Main Street and certainly weren't interested in working people in the Midwest and, you know, the Rust Belt and, and, and so on. Um, and, and he very successfully built this narrative about those people, which included him in it, which put him at the center of it. So he he's a great storyteller, isn't he? You know, whether you like his stories or not, you've got to hand it to him. He, he's a great storyteller. As you mentioned, he places the narrative out in front. I'm wondering if from a psychological perspective, that's an example of the anchoring effect. Uh, the anchoring effect is if I saw a jar of marbles with a sign that said, are there more than 200 marbles? Whatever my guess is would be anchored by that original 200. If it said, are there 2000 marbles? My guess would be anchored by... The two thousand, the two thousand. So, is is the narrative an anchoring impact? Yeah, I think there is anchoring that, that that's happening. I mean, the, the way that I would explain it would be slightly different. So, the, the the sort of theoretical approach I'd reference is what's called social identity theory, or the social identity approach, because actually there's a range of different theories that go together to help us to understand this concept of of social identity. Um, 
And uh, so what social identity is, is if you, if you think of yourself as, you know, who am I? So however I define myself affects how I think, affects how I feel and affects how I behave. So what I'm trying to do in my life is to become an authentic version of myself and to raise my self-esteem. Uh, so this sense of who I am is, is, you know, is what drives our behavior day in, day out. Now, what social identity theory uh, uh, proposed, and it was really a radical breakthrough at the time back in the 1970s, what it, what it proposed was that who you are has actually got a relatively static component, which, which it called your individual or personal identity. So if you imagine yourself when you're on your own and you have an hour to choose to do whatever you wanted to do, and you weren't representing any group, you had no expectations from anyone about what you would do, then what you would do would mostly be driven by this sense of my individual identity. So who am I on, on my own as an individual? And that's the kind of stuff that, you know, to a certain extent gets measured in personality inventories. And that is also the kind of stuff that a lot of leadership theories look, look towards. But there's a, another part to you, which is much more dynamic. And that is what they called your social identity. So this is the identity that you get from belonging to groups. And it's hugely important because, as I said, we're genetically pre-programmed to be really finely tuned to uh, inclusion and exclusion. And in fact, you can, if you put someone into a, an MRI scanner and you uh, look at their brain and you inflict pain on them, so I don't know, put their hand in cold water, you'll see a part of the brain will, will light up um, uh, in response to that pain. If you were then to uh, inflict a social pain on them, so that social pain might be uh, through uh, making them believe that they had been excluded from some from a group that mattered to them, uh, then you would see exactly the same part of the brain light up. And so at a neurological level, the response that we have to social pain is very similar to the response that we have to physical pain. And this explains the bitterness and the anger that we hear. My brain can't tell the difference between the social pain and the physical pain. Yeah, that's that. That's it. So we have a fight or flight or freeze response. And, uh, you know, what, what we're seeing from the likes of, uh, of Trump and a lot of his uh, surrogates is a fight response, aren't we? So we're seeing a fight response from them, and we're seeing a fight response coming back from, from some of the, the, the Democrats and Democratic supporters as well. There is a fine line between comedy and tragedy. American comedian Colin Quinn knows this only too well, as he shows in his off-Broadway show, Red State, Blue State, now on Netflix. The Founding Fathers warned us it would come to this. John Adams said the two-party system is the greatest political evil under our Constitution. George Washington cautioned in his farewell address against excessive political party spirits and geographical distinction. Wise words. They tell us what to do about it. They did not. They just said it, then they died. <laughs> now they left us to figure it out. Real geniuses. You work with leaders. We have some some classical definitions of leadership. I see it gradually morphing. The concept of more emotional quotient intelligence, EQ, as opposed to IQ. Um, I, I, my question is, is a lot of what I'm hearing simply altruism because Donald Trump has managed to gain a massive following 
are we just being altruistic in definitions of leadership saying, well, th these sound nice, so be like this. Uh, ultimately, a leader needs to be effective and win the election. The thing to remember is that there's lots of layers to leadership. Um, so my ability to lead you one-on-one -on -one, uh, in an interpersonal relationship will depend on my ability to interact with you. So my ability to make you feel valued, uh, to show that sort of emotional intelligence, if you like. But once we start moving into a group situation, then I don't need to have emotional intelligence to be a good representative of that group. And my ability to be a good representative of that group is much more important than any of my individual characteristics, which is why, uh, you know, if, if you're a Democrat, you were flabbergasted by uh, the fact that Trump, who seemed to be a very immoral person, um, was able to get the support of, for instance, so many uh, evangelical Christians. Um, and yet, uh, that's because they weren't judging him on him as a person. They're judging him on his ability to progress their group. So if you look at the theory around leadership and the theory around uh, group leadership, there's a couple of uh, uh, guys, uh, one called uh, Alex Haslam and another one, uh, Steve Reicher. Um, and uh, they wrote a book, uh, the first edition about 10 years ago, uh, about uh, a new approach to leadership, uh, uh, which they called identity leadership. And in that, they put forward a really quite a lot of uh, high quality research that suggested that actually for people to follow you, let's think about the followers for a moment, for people to want to follow you, uh, you need to perform four roles. So the first role is to create a sense of us. The second role is to champion us, to go out and advance us, to make us relevant, to make us more important. Uh, the third role is to be a representative of us. So to behave in a way that we should behave, uh, you know, that, that's, that's a characteristic way of behaving in this group. And the last thing is to embed us. And by embed us, what I mean is to make us enduring so that we won't just go away. So if we look at Trump and we consider those four characteristics of leadership, I think you can understand why his base has not crumbled away uh, because uh, he continues to create this strong sense of us amongst that base. Um, he definitely advances the interests of that base in the way that he tells the story. Now you can argue that he hasn't, so one of the big things was about economic fairness. And you could argue that actually uh, economically that, 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 that um, he hasn't helped the people that he promised to help. But that probably isn't their perception because they're then comparing him to what had gone before and to Democrats and, and, and to the elite. So what Trump did really cleverly was he created the sense of us and he created a sense of enemy. And nothing pulls a group together more than the sense of an external threat. And the external threat was this liberal elite. You can't quite put your finger on who's in it, uh, but you know that it's not you and you know that it's bad. So he tells this narrative about this liberal elite and he tells it consistently. So he's really been advancing the interests of that group. Uh, in terms of his behaviors, he represents them. He talks a good story. He does the kind of things that are consistent with what they that they believe in. And the last thing, of course, is to embed us and make us enduring. And, and you just look at his actions around the Supreme Court in particular, uh, and you say, well, actually, it's going to be really hard to change that.
I mean, I know you can pack the court and and other things which are highly controversial and and, and probably quite difficult to do. But um, uh, he has definitely made this. You know, Trump Trump supporters uh, they've changed America. There's there's no doubt about it. So from an identity leadership perspective, we say there are these four roles to play. Donald Trump plays those roles, and I think he plays them pretty consistently and pretty effectively. Brilliant. I really appreciate your time today, Dr. Holt. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Very nice to talk to you. Absolutely. If you'd like to send a message to my guest, Dr. Jeremy Holt, you can email him at jeremy at cfte.co.uk. If you liked what you heard today, we're hoping you choose to subscribe to Stories and Strategies so you can receive updated episodes automatically. We're also hoping that you choose to follow and rate this podcast on any directory that you're listening on. And would you do us a favor, as always, recommend this podcast to one friend. If you have an idea for an episode or you just want to tell us something, send us a note at info at jgrcommunications.com. Thanks for listening. 